Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. I still haven't worked on that new intro, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get that taken care of, but if you've been listening for a while, you know that Something Positive for Positive People is primarily a support resource for people who are navigating herpes stigma. This episode specifically, uh, this is part of a series I'm doing where I'm interviewing various healthcare professionals in the field, getting an understanding of uh, stigma from their perspective um, and what it looks like from their end um, to discover how I can support patients with being better to providers and how providers can be optimally utilized by patients. So uh, this is at this point the fifth or sixth recording. I've got a notebook right here because I'm taking notes during these conversations. I interviewed a sex therapist, um, an ER nurse. I've interviewed a pelvic floor therapist. Uh, and what's the other one? A remote triage nurse. And yeah, I, I've got, yeah, I got interviews <laughs> with healthcare providers and I'm learning quite a bit from these experiences. Um, one of which is, uh, that I think is the most relevant is I often hear from people who are diagnosed who are like, yeah, I was in such pain and I went to the ER and they told me it was herpes. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. And I was just bawling my eyes out when I got home. So in speaking with one of the healthcare providers, one of the things that she said was, you know, from a perspective standpoint, someone who's in a particular zip code at that hospital may consistently see gunshot victims not all gunshot victims make it and not all of them are able to be treated not all of them are the best of people right so you're coming in for something subjectively as minor as a bump on your genitals and there are people who have seen literally people die that day so for them saying it's not that bad that's what they mean by it's not that bad it's not downplaying your experience it's i see gunshot victims on a day-to-day basis i'm actually happy that this is something as simple as herpes and people don't really understand it from the patient perspective so these are kinds of insights that i'm getting as i speak to healthcare professionals so um i'm hoping to be able to get more of that here and to be able to share that um we've got jenna here from planned parenthood vermont and um she is a nurse practitioner i am going to have you go ahead and just introduce yourself to uh whatever extent you would like to uh starting with also telling me like what, what's a nurse practitioner because when you when you said that i was like yeah you're uh nurse and then she's like no nurse practitioner and i was like oh my bad oh i'm so sorry <laughs> kind of a big deal all right um so hi i'm jenna so happy to be here chatting with you courtney i've learned so much from you over the last year and a half of following your instagram but i am a nurse practitioner which means i can diagnose and prescribe and treat and evaluate all sorts of primary care and gynecologic conditions in my current job, that means everything from STI screening to well-person visits, problem visits, abortion care, gender-affirming care. It's a really wide range, um, but certainly I'm talking about herpes many times a day, so it has been super helpful to have this resource, and I'm excited to, to chat with you more. Oh, I'm yeah. so excited to hear that. So when I first started this podcast in 2017, maybe I jumped ahead of the gun, but I wanted this to be something that was useful to healthcare organizations, uh, urgent cares, um, I guess who else, like fam- not family care providers, but just like little doctor's offices in my town. And when I was reaching out, uh, just trying to get this resource out, I got rejected very often just for not being a credible resource and that was really discouraging and honestly might have fueled a little bit of my own competitiveness to be like all right well watch this and here we are six years later with nonprofit status 300 podcast episodes and everything but uh it feels so good to just know that 
through social media at the very least there's these connections being made and i I recognize like i post stuff with my shirt off not everything's professional there's still like the personal aspect of it and i'm curious to know from your perspective as someone who's in the field who is utilizing this resource for work is if well it's kind of two-part but first does my presentation of myself influence your decision to utilize this resource or does it shape your perspective of my credibility at all Mm. i love when people are humans right and i think particularly if i'm suggesting this to a patient as like a form of support they're gonna be thrilled to know that there's someone who is like a full person with a full range of experience who's there for them so i think if you like however you present on the internet, if that's like authentic to you, I think it just like adds to credibility because you're just a real person. That's, that's all we want. Right. So I don't, I don't think it's a downside at all. Um, and I just feel like as someone who is continually evolving my practice, um, it's so helpful to see like the examples of disclosure you post to hear what is going on behind the scenes, because I only see people in this like snapshot moment when they're in the office having a range of emotions. So to know more, um, like an unfiltered look at what goes on, how people are navigating, talking with partners, it then gives me a good perspective to then share with patients. And I can use normalizing statements with them. Like a lot of people tell me that this, this, and this is helpful. And then that gives like a jumping off point for our conversation. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, and I ask because there's this fine line between being, professional and then personable and so typically workshops presentations speaking opportunities have come to me from being a human right like there have been people in organizations who follow me on social media and they're like hey i would really like to invite you to speak at this thing we want to pay you here's the opportunity and i'm like you found me through social media like i didn't have to present like the the way that my page is even laid out the um the screenshots you know i've been critiqued on how sloppy things look but it's like it's more important to me to be consistent than it is to be perfect you know maybe there will come a day where i can have people doll things up but even then like i'm like well if it's dolled up and it's like perfect am i even talking to the people that perfection doesn't matter to anymore because then I'd be just trying to appeal to the CDC and other organizations that aren't even, I'm not even on their radar, (laughs) right? And I'm trying to put all these resources into appealing to them when for so long, what I've been doing has been working and it has been making the significant impact that I'm able to see. So uh, thank you again for just validating Mm -hmm. that for me here. Of course. Yeah. Uh, You mentioned gender affirming care. Uh, Mm -hmm. Gender affirming care is not exclusively uh, like trans care, right? Is gender affirming care also, I I saw someone post this and it never hit me this way, but like um, breast implants being Mm -hmm. gender affirming care and like things that we would see in most hetero settings as gender affirming care. Is that, is that medically accurate to say, can we define gender affirming care? Yeah. I feel like gender affirming care is a huge blanket, like umbrella to include everything from hormone therapy to like non-medical interventions. So sometimes people just want information about how to present in a way that's affirming to them. That doesn't involve taking testosterone or estradiol. Um, and it is more around either like surgical affirmation or just like packing or, um, vocal coaching, things like that. And Planned Parenthood mostly focuses on hormone prescribing. Um, but we're sort of like a hub where people can reach resources to, um, the community to get what they need. Okay. I was just curious cause yeah. I, I realized when you said it, I was like, Oh, the only thing I know about it is like if someone's trans and they want. A surgery done or they need medication mm-hmm. to go into the transition phase okay all right so uh let's talk about not just herpes um while that's gonna come up in this conversation i'm more so curious about what way you often deliver a diagnosis 
And the reason I'm asking about the how of this is because you're the first touch point of STI stigma. Mm -hmm. When a person has an inkling of something being off with their bodies and they think, oh, I might have an infection, this might be herpes. The first thing that they do is they might go and make an appointment with someone like you. So when they see you, your interaction as a healthcare provider is the initial touch point of STD prevention, not just STI mm-hmm. stigma, but um, it influences not only how a person discloses their status, but if they go on to disclose their status. So just can you walk me through the process of a person like you don't really know they're scheduled you go into the room and you are getting the information or you already have an idea that they're having some pain in their genitals can you walk me through like what some of your thoughts are and what the interaction looks like yeah totally that happens again many times a day a uh, day so I own... many times a, a day. day oh totally okay. <laughs> yeah yep um so i always talk with people about what their symptoms are. In an ideal world, I would meet patients before they're undressed for an exam. I'm a big fan of trauma-informed care, and I don't feel like it does much to equalize the power dynamic of meeting someone when they're already halfway undressed, but, you know, the medical system is restrictive. Um, so I always try to get a sense, like a really comprehensive idea about what their symptoms have been. A really useful question to ask for me is like, what are you worried this is? And that often elicits people being like, well, I Googled it and now I'm worried it's herpes um, or something else, a genital wart, et cetera. Um, I try to like be calming and just be like, you know, there's lots of reasons for skin changes. We'll take a look. If anything looks suspicious for any sort of STI, I can do some tests and then we'll talk about what that means. I'll then do an exam. If they do have a lesion that looks suspicious for HSV, I'll do a swab. I'm very careful not to start that conversation while someone is like laying down and I'm doing that swab. Like that just feels totally un-okay. not okay. Um, but then folks will sit up and that often is the point where if it does look suspicious, I'll be like, so it does appear like this could be suggestive of herpes. And there's a range of reactions, right? You know this probably better than anyone. I feel like the people who react the best are folks who like have either partners or friends who have had this diagnosis before. So they already know what it's like through them to live with HSV. And they'll be like, okay, no big deal. I know like I've heard you can take medication. Is that true? Like, so then we can get more into the conversation on the medical side of managing. And then you have folks who absolutely lose it for a number of reasons. And then it becomes more of a conversation, meeting them where they're at and whatever emotions they're having. Um, And that might not be the visit to start going into like, you can take medication, you can do this because like they're just not in a place where they could hear that at all. Um, I am curious to get your thoughts. Some, some, a really sticky gray area I get into is like, if I do an exam well, hold on, there's two things. There's the gray area where I'm like suspicious, but I'm not totally sure that that's what's going on. So then they have even more uncertainty. They know that I took a sample and they then have to go home and wait for a couple of days to get that result back. That always feels really tricky. <laughs> just like how to counsel, like it might be, it might not be. I don't want to tell you, like I'll send medication just in case. That's tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another thing I've been struggling with is when it's not herpes, when I look and immediately I'm like, nope, ingrown hair. I wonder how I'm like stigmatizing herpes indirectly because they're so relieved and I want to meet them in that relief. But then that's like acting like HSV is inherently negative, which I don't feel like it is. So it's just a nuanced process. I'm like still growing and evolving as a provider. And it totally like how I give that information really depends on how the person is feeling or how they're talking to me. Yeah. How long have you been a nurse practitioner? I've been a nurse practitioner for four years, but I've been with Planned Parenthood for 11. So I was a medical assistant with them and then went back to school and been living in this world of reproductive health for a really long time. Okay. Uh, so to answer your question first about, you know, if it might be herpes, but, um, you look and you're like, oh, this is an ingrown hair and they're like, oh my God, thank God it's not herpes. That would have been the worst, right? Ha ha ha. (laughs) I can only imagine, 
uh, that because when I first got my diagnosis, so I don't know that I've really talked about this much, but a couple of years before I got my diagnosis, I had suspicion that I had herpes and I went and I did a blood test at this, um, like a blood test lab place. And when I went in for this, I went on and paid that 200 whatever dollars it was because I needed to know. And so I got my results back and they were negative. However, there was a presence of antibodies. It just wasn't enough to have tested positive. So I think that my initial reaction was, oh, thank God this isn't herpes. Like it's negative. But there was still part of me that was questioning that. Like, okay, well. Yeah, it's negative, but what does it mean to have antibodies? Does everybody have antibodies for herpes, right? So technically, does everybody have some resistance to herpes or some susceptibility to herpes? So does everyone technically have herpes or what? And yeah, that that relief came, but I was more educated. I was more informed about it. I think that that experience did prepare me for when I was exposed to it because when I was exposed or when I had my uh, outbreak, my first outbreak, I knew sort of what to look for, what information to look for to help. Because if you just Google pictures of herpes, that's not useful. It's not helpful at all. So what I ended up looking at was, okay, well, now I have herpes. Um, I'm glad that at least the people I asked haven't gotten it from me because I mm-hmm. didn't want to be the person who was giving, going around giving people herpes. So I was alleviated from that embarrassment. However, uh, you know, I still have <laughs> herpes now, right? But <clears throat> I looked up how to minimize outbreaks, the risks of outbreaks or like to manage the symptoms. And what came up for me was just nutrition, uh, exercise and stress management. And so I got into yoga, I got a personal trainer, I got a nutritionist, and that was how I moved forward. I learned how to eat, I learned how to take care of myself um, in those ways to just reduce the possibility of having outbreaks moving forward. I did need to learn. I did need to know that the medication was going to bring my genitals back to normal because they were not normal. And I thought that that was how it was going to look forever. And I was like, I'm not going to ever be able to have sex with this like little mini nuclear explosion on the side of my genitals and when it went away and it looked like nothing happened i was just like oh so my guidance based off of the experience that i had personally would just be hey you know even if this were herpes um these are some things to know um and i would say like the possibility of exposure, the information about testing, um, things that might affect them moving forward, even before a diagnosis. You know, hey, you could have been exposed. If you'd like, we can do a herpes test. I don't know if you want to even take it that far um, with them. But yeah, you know, this doesn't look like herpes. However, we can test you for it. A lot of people aren't tested for it. It's not in most screenings, blah, blah, blah. I think that that would have been good for me um, when I went in for my herpes, my doctor's visit before I went and got the blood test done because the first doctor didn't want to give me a a test. She didn't test me. She looked at my genitals and said, it just looks like you've been busy. And this, I wasn't even busy. I was just intensely masturbating at that point. I was not getting laid at this point in time (laughs) in my life. So yeah, I thought something was going on, went into the uh, clinic uh, healthcare facility. She just looked and did like a swab. I, I hated that. I think that that traumatized me to not really? want to get tested again. When she had to put the Q-tip inside my uh my urethra, she had to swab. Oh my gosh, my we don't do that anymore. No, You're in samples, man. I know no this way. was this was um how long ago was this? I was in college. It was like 2009, 2010. No, yeah. it was 2008 or 2009 when this happened because <clears throat> it was like. 2010 or 11 when I got the herpes test myself like I went on and I was like no I'm not I don't believe this (laughs) um 
but yeah does that answer your question to be able to just present them with some of those yeah. like common bits of information that would influence totally. how they were to they would interact with someone who would disclose to them because now they've yeah. got this story hey i had this herpes scare and the doctor told me it was a hair bump and i remember what i went through during that so that must have been hard for you yeah, that makes total sense. I feel like I do something similar even around like chlamydia and gonorrhea screening to just say like we're going to screen for chlamydia and gonorrhea that can go without symptoms. If either were positive, both are easy to treat with antibiotics, sort of like laying the road for like if you do get this news, there's something to do about it. Not a big deal. Like it's great that you're here just sort of creating like a positive space. Yeah. Um, as so I went to Planned Parenthood, I think it was two weekends ago, two or three weekends ago, uh, for SCI screening, I had a partner who had messaged me and said that she had trick and I was her only partner over the last, uh, like six months. And I was like, huh, that's, that's strange. Like we've worn condoms every time for, uh, intercourse, um, not for oral. And when I went, uh, or I got the text and I was just like, I don't know, because I had someone also tell me before that they had been exposed to trick and that I should get tested. I went and I got tested and I got treated. I was like, yeah, treat me. So I got on the treatment and then come to find out my results were negative and she was also misdiagnosed, this first person I was speaking of. So I took the medication, got treated, and then time passes and then this person who tells me I'm the only partner that they've had, even with a condom, um, she's like, yeah, so I tested positive for trick. You're the only person I've been with. She didn't, wasn't like blame me at all, but it was just more of a, hey, heads up, go get tested. So I was like, all right, well, <laughs> I go and I get tested. And this time I'm like, ah, I don't want to take the antibiotics until I know. But um, what I found at Planned Parenthood was that this was different. It was like, hey, take this. Uh, it's like four pills at once instead of the however long of the antibiotics were that I was given the first time. And this speaks sort of to the... Uh, how I was talking about a nurse who might see gunshot victims consistently mm. versus someone who's coming in for SCI symptoms because at this practice, they gave me this lengthy treatment for trick. And at Planned Parenthood, they gave me just pop these pills right here and with some food and you're good. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I, I really think that that place of like where you go to get tested and treated influences the experience as well because uh this was like um i don't it was an urgent care and for where they are i would have thought that they've seen a lot of sti related cases in that area but it didn't really seem to be like a place where they were comfortable talking about sex either so uh yeah just going back to the point that i was making about uh trick so i had gone into planned parenthood to be tested for treated for trick and while i was there like i was like oh wait if i'm here i might as well just get tested as well so uh i just asked i was like hey can i also get tested for other scis and this was with the first nurse who came in to do the um like uh, information intake. gathering. Yeah, the intake. And she was like, yeah, sure. So, like, she does whatever she does on the screen. And I was like, what am I being tested for? And she was like, oh, chlamydia, uh, gonorrhea, syphilis. Um, and she mentioned something about the hepatitis and asked about, like, risk factors there. And uh, I was like, oh, okay. Do you all test for herpes? And she was like, yeah, we test for herpes. We can test you for herpes. I was like, well, I think I, I have type 2. I would be curious to know if I have type 1. And so she's like, sure. And it was no big deal. The nurse yep. who, um, I guess this would have been the nurse practitioner who came in <clears throat> and talked to me, um, not just about trick, but also, uh, I had a bunch of herpes questions and she didn't know who I was. So I was just like, tell me more. Yeah. Let, let me have this. And she was just real cool about speaking to, um, herpes. She gave me a resource that I actually have to look, uh, look more into because she was like, yeah, this is like the most recent thing. This is something that I share with patients. So I want to investigate that and then I'll maybe do a podcast episode sharing that data and information. But, um, yeah, I'll, all of that to say, uh, just fast forward through a bunch of unnecessary rambling. My test results came back positive for HSV-1. 
and it was 21.5 this was the igg test and the higher the number i believe the longer you've had the infection is that accurate Oh, I haven't heard that. I just know that there's like the range of like negative, indeterminate, and positive. I have not heard about a correlation with duration. Oh, yeah. So I, subjectively speaking, my number was high. (laughs) So uh, the, and it makes me think back to when I got my diagnosis at an urgent care, he just Mm -hmm. looked and it was like, oh yeah, that's herpes. So we'll give you the treatment for it. Uh, It's genital. So it's type two and then sent me on my way. So I may have never had HSV2, and I didn't ask Planned Parenthood to test me for type 2 because I was diagnosed with type 2 and wanted to just know if I had type 1. But uh, going back to like the uh, other part of what you were sharing earlier, uh, with there being positive results, I think uh, we were going in that direction at least. Mm-hmm. What I got um, in my chart, I got the results, and then within a few days, I got like a, a letter with the nurse practitioner's name it was just like some information about herpes because she said like if we don't call you you're negative right for everything else but because i made this specific request for hsv1 i wonder if that shifted the way that the communication took place because i was like yeah i already have genital herpes i would just be curious if i had you know type one i'm sorry uh, i know i have type two genital i would be curious to know if i have type one genital as well or if i had been exposed to it at all and so, yeah. Um, yeah, I thought that that communication of just the letter was enough for me. But is that yeah. generally what you do when you get positive results? I think now it's I think it varies by like affiliate, but usually we can see if someone's looked at their lab result results online. I'm not sure our specific workflow because it's sort of done like centralized. I think we either call or send a letter with positive results, but we want to make sure that we do get in touch with someone with any kind of positive result. And I think HSV is tough and you're sort of like hinting at that because your diagnosis can be anything from an emergency room doctor being like, yeah, you have this goodbye to like a full on conversation at Planned Parenthood and everything in between. And I think your points are on like, it really does matter how you get that initial information. I've seen people who have, I've I've sort of started the habit recently of like, if someone has HSV in their like diagnosis list, I'll bring it up sort of proactively with them if they're there for like STI conversation to just be like, how's that going? Like, are you taking medication? Do you want to be? Do you have any questions? And so many folks are like, oh, I've actually like not really talked about this since I was diagnosed. It was super traumatic. It was in this context of like a terrible relationship there. It can be this like real hub for so much unresolved stuff like self-image stuff and relationship stuff and I think if we're not like brave about asking people we might never get into that with them and like so many people just live their lives sort of in fear of their outbreak like the next outbreak because they weren't given good education at the time of diagnosis Hmm. Um, just feels like we can do so much better as providers yeah what do you need from patients I think just like I'm someone who really tries to to share power and like reduce the power dynamic wherever I can. So I try to be very open to folks who want HSV screening. Um, I, or what I need from patients, I guess, is like they can advocate however they want. I think it's great when people are specific, when they have specific questions. Um, when it comes to HSV screening specifically, I always start by saying like, I'm happy to do that test for you. Here are just some limitations that you should be aware of. And then I kind of go through the, like, we don't know when, and if you'll ever have an outbreak, we don't know when you're exposed. There are like, there's a risk of false positive. Like how does all of that land for you? And I've had folks just say like, oh, actually, never mind. I don't really need that. Or people who are like, okay, yeah, got it. Still want that. Um, but it's up to patients and I want people to be able to feel comfortable to ask for what they need and to also just be able to receive that information and like check in with themselves to see if it is something that would cause them more distress than not. But I ultimately like trust people to make the decision that they need. And I will also say that it does vary by provider. So I know that that advice is not like one size fits all because I've worked with clinicians who are like, absolutely not. I won't do an HSV serum unless like we really get into it with a patient who like will not say like accept no for an answer, which I think is not ideal care personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You kind of were getting into this uh, stigma component when you mentioned 
uh, someone coming in for what they think might be herpes and then you see that it's uh, ingrown hair and now that person's like oh thank god it's not herpes and you wanted to know kind of how to deal with that can i ask yeah. what are some other ways that you see stigma uh i guess among other providers among peers and what ways do you see it from patients as well yeah for providers i feel like i don't know if this is straight stigma but because there's so much potential for herpes to open up a lot of emotions and feelings and providers don't necessarily feel like they have either the language, the tools, the time. They, I think, tend to stray away from, from going there if they don't have to, or like, I've just like seen people, I don't know, I guess, like roll their eyes and they're like, this patient's really concerned about herpes. And they're just like, oh, okay, here we go again. I'm going to have to like go in and go through this whole thing. And because like medically it's not a dangerous condition per se, like you were speaking about the ER provider, um, it's tempting to just brush it off and be like, oh, it's a manageable skin condition without really giving space to the fact that it is hugely distressing or significant for some people. And then from patients, I hear the language around like dirty and clean all the time, which is hard. Um, a lot of like, if they are positive, immediately being worried about who gave it to who, like blaming their partner for having other partners, maybe like some self-blame and like slut-shaming language, which really sucks to hear and like breaks my heart. There's just so much work we have to undo, like all of the purity culture stuff. Um, I noticed with like older patients too, like it, I've taken care of a number of like people in their forties or fifties who are like navigating dating for the first time. And they like maybe either have a symptom or think they were exposed and they're carrying so much shame because they were raised in an even less sex positive culture than we were. Um, so it really just like runs the gamut, but it, it shows up all the time. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that with Planned Parenthood that you see mostly women. Um, but Recently, I learned that you also treat men. Uh, yeah, totally. Do you, have you seen men, and in what ways has this experience, whether it be a diagnosis or uh, just getting tested and treated for anything else, like how do you see any sort of reactions from men? What does that interaction look like, and how does it differ from women? Hmm. I mean, people are people, right? Like there are some gendered reactions, but um, I think men gen very generalized like there is a lot of worry about partners being non-monogamous like they're very i feel like sometimes there's a real hesitancy to understand like they very well could have given it to their partner in the same way like people are really desperate to point a finger sometimes um i also think that i see a lot more fear from people who identify as men around disclosing or sharing a diagnosis they'll like have carried all of this stress um and anxiety without looping in their partner i saw someone the other day who was so incredibly stressed out about just like other urethral symptoms not even a skin change that it's like i was twitching when he was talking to me he was like so physically like shaken because he had not talked to anyone for two weeks while he was just panicking about his symptoms and I was like, have you talked to your partner of many years? This is not like a new partner, just to explain what's been going on with your body. And he immediately was like so worried that she would think he was cheating or he, maybe she would like, it really is hard for, I think, men to just take a step back and like be vulnerable with their partners and um, like let go of some of that like stoicism around their health. Yeah. Um, stoicism around their health, because I, I think that's very accurate. Um, there's not very much experience with dealing with, oh, hello, that was my oh, that alarm. Oh, our reminder alarms going yeah. on at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least we know we were on it. Um, yeah. so yeah, we started this podcast 30-ish minute. Whoa, hold on. Cause I'm going to have another alarm that goes off. Let me hurry up and, and stop that before that interrupts. Yep. 815, 820. Perfect. All right. Yeah, we get these podcasts in whenever we can. It's Sunday morning, 8.15 Pacific time, and we started this thing about 30-something minutes ago. But <clears throat> uh, the reason I ask about men's reactions is because I 
as a man, I had a very unique reaction to what I hear from mostly women. And there is uh, generally between, if we're looking at this from a men and women perspective, it's a lot easier for a woman to have sex like more men are supposed to pursue women for sexual relationships and with this diagnosis men may feel because so much of our identity is in our sexuality and uh, so much of a relationship is a sexual component we feel like wow now I can't do that nobody like why would someone want to have sex with me if I have this herpes diagnosis and now I'm like pursuing them and I have to tell them that I have herpes and they can just explore their other options so from that perspective I see how men feel like now their options are so much more limited because not only are the people they would be interested in uh, having way more options but it's like oh well you know I can just be with someone with more and this is such a lens that I see from uh, is primarily heterosexual men who, well, no, not even just heterosexual men. It's men, period. Um, whereas with women, like you said, I think what you wrote here was uh, like people seem to want to point fingers or there's this like clean, dirty purity culture. And the disconnects here between oh my God, nobody's going to want me anymore from the women's side. And then on the men's side being like, oh my God, like I'm, nobody's going to want me anymore. There's not this, uh, centralized thought process of, okay, this just becomes a little bit more challenging. Like there's something different that has to happen when we talk about our, fears of disclosure and it's so interesting to me that fear of disclosure is what comes up uh Mm -hmm. because that's probably one of the more prominent things that just doesn't get talked about because it now goes into the territory of having to talk about sex it was in planned parent it was at a planned parenthood i was sitting in the office and i was looking at these statistics there were two flyers one said 72 percent of patients don't initiate conversations about sex with their provider and 68 percent of providers don't initiate conversations with their patients about sex those numbers may be flipped but i remember seeing those percentages in those statements and so if nobody wants to talk about sex with the people that we should be talking about our sexual health with that number has to be significantly different between a partner initiating conversations about sex with their other partner and then yeah. not, uh, the other way around right so it it almost looks like okay well the person who's positive is now more responsible for initiating this conversation because yeah it is generally assumed that if someone's going to be having sex that they are clean that they are dirty and why would anyone want to have sex if you're not clean right and yeah we 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 just tend to we are able to just go down this rabbit hole of that uh, thought process of who's responsible for initiating that conversation so would you say that tools that help people navigate the communication component of their diagnosis would be useful. Absolutely. I know you're really connected with Evelyn Decker. Yeah. I saw I used her stars model because I, I did a presentation about like consent and sexual communication for my Planned Parenthood. Um, and I think that is like the perfect tool to, to be able to, whether you're starting with the like, I was tested for this, this, and this. What about you? Like her, her model language, I think, can lend itself to disclosure really well. And I try when I can um, to bring that into the conversation just more generally, and then um, patients can use it as they need to. I think the, like jumping back a little bit, the gender stuff is so interesting around disclosure too, because like, I think in a like hetero cis situation, like historically men hold some power, like I would say more power than the cis woman than to have it like both parties be so nervous about disclosing. I don't know. I sort of lost my train of thought there, but Oh, we can we can go back there. So uh, with what I what I see with men is that the reason that this is so difficult is because it is a vulnerable piece of conversation. Many times whenever sex is on the table, I think that a lot of the communication that is essential to being able to have informed consent and really negotiate a 
good, positive, healthy experience is dismissed and defaulted to, do you have a condom or are you yeah. on birth control? You it's, good. Yeah, right. <laughs> you good. I'm good. All right, here we go. And that's, that's exactly how it was. And as a man, I, I know I can speak for a lot of men here. Um, my last sexual partner, whatever her STI status became after she got her annual exam was what I knew my status was. It's like, oh, if she ain't got any, if she ain't got nothing, I ain't got nothing. We good. I don't have to get tested. Why should I get tested? And so this really does sort of put the responsibility on the partner of the person, of the man or the person who identifies as a man. Uh, it puts that responsibility on that partner to hold this other person to a standard of, hey, I need you to get tested as well. Right. Because again, going back to the power thing, you know, for women to ask for what they need is really difficult at times. And for the men, right. it's just like so expected that this is how you're going to be showing up here. Again, like I, ex I would expect someone who wants to be sexually active to not have anything that would uh, hinder their ability to be sexually active with me. So <clears throat> regardless of my frequency of testing or infrequency of testing, like I'm going off what my last partner said. If nobody told me that I have, that they have anything, then I don't have anything. But then you've got people uh, who would be so afraid to ask for partners to get tested or who would be afraid to even tell partners that they tested positive for something because i've spoken to a lot of women who've been like no nah, i'd rather not i'm not gonna have that conversation i don't want him to look at me differently and then yeah. bam however many partners later you've got someone who's peeing blood and then then now this person's like i'm not telling anybody so the <laughs> communication component to me is one of the core action items for reducing these consistently growing rates of new mm -hmm. STI cases. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I, I like to frame that for people, just like the best, safest sex happens when you talk about it first, like kind of as a blanket statement, and also just naming like, and it's really hard to have these conversations. We don't have good models, like we don't have good, like, like anything, you got to practice for it to feel natural. Um, and it really just, I would say like the younger generation is a little bit more adept at it. Like, right. Like the Gen Zers are just like, oh yeah, that's fine. And, and even I've seen a little bit of a difference and this is purely anecdotal around like HSV stigma too. Like folks who are like 18 to 21, if they get that diagnosis, they're like, oh yeah, I'm already like following all the Instagram accounts. <laughs> like they're, they're educated and like way less freaked out than someone in their 30s and 40s which is kind of interesting to see the culture shift it, it is and i take a lot of what i see with the younger generations and try and relay that and communicate that to the older generations but what i find is that youth may play a role differently in in two ways on one hand it's like oh you know i'm I'm young, like I'll have opportunities, like this isn't the end of it. And then on the other end, it's like, oh my God, but I'm so young and I haven't done anything yet, right? But I'm, see, I see so much more of just this meh, nonchalant, shoulder shrug. Like even with partners who uh, might not have herpes, like people with herpes are like, yeah, you know, I disclose and we have a conversation about it and that's that. And this is what I see with the younger generation of people who are sexually active. Now, when we get old into the older generations, let's say around my age, 30, I'm 34. Uh, so anywhere between, I would say, 25 is like where you start to like see the shift from it being so cool to uh, this is a concern between 25 and 45 let's say because i think that on the higher end of that you've got people who are getting out of long-term relationship out of divorce like let's just say that people who are divorced people who are beginning to open up their relationships anyone who's getting back out there into the dating world right that's what we're looking at versus uh versus the people who might be in that 25 to 30 ish range who are like okay like I'm, I'm i'm dating this is a culture that we live in and it's hard because people are more so exploring their options you know i think that 30 to 35 is sort of the age range where people are 
you know, seeing that they have options or maybe rediscovering that, oh, you know, I can actually date. People are receptive to dating. The dating pool is, you know, I have options. I have um, the ability to date different people, date different ways and just explore. It's very explorative. And so what happens at that point is that people are then having to meet people who do have herpes, don't have herpes, uh, who are into kink and BDSM or different relationship styles. And so the newness of it uh, is one more component that people have to face along with everything else in relation to sexually transmitted infections, communications about what it is that they want from relationships. And that too is just vulnerable, like to have to think bigger picture. You you look like you want to say something. No, um, <laughs> no, I just like, I love everything you're saying. And I feel like I've seen that reflected so much. I think also just as individuals in your 30s, you get better at like knowing yourself, knowing what, ideally, <laughs> knowing what you're after, like feeling more comfortable advocating or asking partners. But I think that as a sexual health provider, like making sure to norm, like we play a big role in normalizing those conversations. And I think I like to think <laughs> uh, just even like a phrase being like, you should be talking to partners about your STI status or condom use or whatever, like can start to shift the narrative away from all of the like cultural garbage we've all been <laughs> raised in over the last like 30 years. Mm-hmm. I would be curious if uh, videos like from your experience, do you think that something that, offers a video of some sort on the website where people's like people's top concerns are are when are the symptoms going to go away for herpes and how how do I communicate this to partners like mm-hmm. something we have the stars framework right but would yeah. access to a stars video or examples of disclosing do you find do you think that that would even be something that could be helpful to people who oh kick the desk to people who um would be navigating this conversation like can that can that help because I see a lot of words in places and yeah you know you can read and conceptualize and idealize but to see it in action I think is what the something positive for positive people podcast does allowing for people to actually hear voices and hear experiences that people have had or are having where you know a video might be something that they go oh you know I can pull this from that I like this let me integrate that into my safer sex talk practice I think absolutely I love all the scripting examples I've seen from your account and like positively podcast uh positively pod positive podcast such a hard thing to say um so I I could see a video being really useful as well and I've taken so much language from those uh scripts to share with patients like something that's coming to mind right now is I love like reminding people that they don't need to apologize as part of their sharing of their diagnosis. And like, I've had people respond so positively to that. They're just like, you're right. Like, I don't have to say sorry that I have HSV. Like that doesn't, they can find their own information about their diagnosis. I don't owe them really anything except for like information about me. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it can be really freeing. So seeing that stuff modeled would be huge. Yeah. Um, there's also some providers who don't talk about disclosing and I wonder if you can share any insight, if you know anything about that at all, like, um, different things are said by the provider between just wear a condom, take your antivirals, uh, you don't shed the virus unless you have an outbreak. There's just miss the, the information that's being shared offers people you know, like power dynamics, right? You're a credible person and I'm looking for any reason at all to not have to deal with this, to ignore this or to be able to get away with not disclosing and for a healthcare provider to say, Hey, well, you don't have to, you know, like what, what do you, what do you have to add to that? Or what do you have to say about that? Yeah. I mean, my first thought is around like the roots, like the education, like the medical education that we get. Like, I just think there isn't enough attention paid to STIs and sexual health in general. So I have to imagine that it's coming from a place of like ignorance or misconception and versus like purposeful uh, deception. Like I think if provide 
just knew they would be giving the correct information, but we're people like anyone else, and we're also susceptible to the stigma and the misinformation flying around. Um, so I, I know you do. Oh, I think I lost internet. We good? We good. I'm here. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, I know you do like standardized patient work, but I wonder how that could like, you know, talking to med students about how to talk about STIs and HSV is so important. Uh, so we're while we're in this territory, um, I am actively looking for funding that would allow for me to give these patient scenarios where they have to take a sexual history, deliver an STI, a positive STI test results, um, offer treatment, and, and really give them the practice, well, not students, but I wanted to do this for providers. Internet. Sorry, hold on. Oh, no, I can hear I, I can tell. I just started talking. Uh, here, I'll pause things. I'll pause. Hold on. Can I do this? Pause. Pause. All right. So, uh, yeah, had a little bit of a hiccup there. But the ideal thing that I would do seeking funding is to create scenarios for healthcare providers to be able to take a sexual history uh, and be able to deliver a diagnosis, uh, to go through even a scenario of, oh, this patient is presenting with what looks like herpes, give the examination, oh, it's a hair bump. How are you going to send this patient off from that uh, in a way that is going to help with the STD prevention component. What type of resources are you gonna offer? And then also give them the opportunity to give feedback as well. Now, I wonder if this would be more useful to medical students uh, versus providers, because working as a standardized patient, what I see is oftentimes like scenarios where uh, there's things like high blood pressure, um, things like headaches, uh, cough, right? And I know that those are more consistent reasons that people would see, you know, those uh, that the healthcare professionals would see more of those kinds of people than younger people who are coming in for potential STI symptoms. But I do believe that there's something to be said for having the practice of being able to take that sexual history and to be able to deliver a diagnosis in a way that is actively anti-stigmatizing, that is identity validating and affirming, um, that is also, you know, supportive to other people's lifestyles or people's alternative lifestyles. So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking for that. I'm putting that out there to the world. <laughs> so if somebody wants to give me money, like I already have a lot of what I need in order to make that happen. It's just a matter of the time. Like, honestly, I can do it myself. It's just a matter of um, being able to monetarily support this project. Yeah, I also see or I wonder what the breakdown is of people getting their initial diagnoses from places like urgent care or the emergency room. And I also want to say that, like, the fact that people go to those places for a bump on their genitals speaks to the stigma so loudly that someone is like so freaked out about their genital symptoms that they're going to go to the emergency room, which is it's totally not an emergency, not a medical emergency, at least. Um, but all this to say, I think like targeted outreach of like those providers, as well as people working in sexual and reproductive health clinics, who I think, I think should know most of the information, but because um, you're right, like a lot of medical students will go on to be in the hospital system or primary care. And that's not necessarily where people are having these conversations. No, not at all. Um, all right. So we're approaching, you know, sort of the end here of our time together. Um, I very much appreciate you being so willing to meet with me, especially with this quick turnaround time. So what I got here um, is, you know, we spoke to herpes just not being a dangerous condition in most cases. There's always an exception to the rule. I don't want anybody reaching out to me saying, well, I know somebody who dot, 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 because it's not always the case. We're speaking from a very general perspective here. Uh, some of the concerns that people have are who gave what to who. Um, you see some of the clean versus dirty language, and these are some ways that stigma shows up uh, when you are treating a patient 
uh, who might be presenting not just herpes symptoms, but any STI, uh, people actively want to point fingers. Who gave this to who? When could I have gotten it? And then there's this fear of disclosure with the diagnosis. Uh, men just tend to not be vulnerable, um, like we always have spoken about on this podcast as well. And then um, we spoke about how useful communication resources and tools could be um, in aiding STI minimization. I say STI minimization because that's my term, but STD prevention for those who are like, what's STI minimization? Or I like see, that word. I do too. It's like so much better because condoms don't prevent STIs either. They minimize the risk and they're supposed to prevent pregnancy if used properly, but we don't even have ways of showing people how to use it. Um, I had this training with um, someone here in Portland. There's a training institute um, for sexuality and sex education. And she said like one of her clients, you know, she was like, hey, um, if you're gonna be sexually active, you use a condom, showed him how to use a condom on a banana. And then he had sex and he was like, yeah, I had sex and now I'm scared, something's wrong. And she's like, well, what do you mean? Didn't you use a condom? She's like, yeah, I did. She's like, well, how did you use the condom? He goes, oh, I put it on a banana just like you told me. And I set it on the dresser next to me while we had sex. And it's like, wow, if we are unable to, you know, really speak to these things and uh, communicate, like it's, it's all about communication. You know, how can we ever expect to decrease the uh, year over year increasing STI rates that every year we see these new publications that are like STD cases are on the rise again it's like okay more people more sex less communication why do you think this is happening totally but I, I say all of that just to recap and then ask if there's anything else that you would like to have included here anything that you want to share I'm like nervous to open a, a new can of worms, but I'm just curious your thoughts around uh, the, you've probably talked about this so much before, like, but the difference in stigma around HSB one versus two, cause that's something that comes up with patients where like in the conversation about disclosure, disclosure specifically where we'll highlight like folks don't often disclose that they have cold sores before engaging in sex, but that is also herpes. So just like the nuance there of like educating without stigmatizing like HSV2 versus HSV1. Yeah, so what I basically see is the one and two don't matter. It's really about location. So yeah. genital herpes, pre, like, yeah, you, people who have type one will, you know, like, oh yeah, I have HSV1. And then if you pry a little bit more, you find out that it's genital. It's like, oh, so you have genital herpes. Well, it's type one, everybody has type one. And there's a positioning of the information when, I mean, I would just prefer to hear I have I have herpes. Uh, I either have it genitally or I have it orally. Give me that information, and that's really all that is relevant. And as I talk to people and we have this ongoing communication, they tend to kind of have an aha moment there. They're like, oh, that, that does make more sense. So it's not to me about... Uh, the type one, type two thing, it's really about the location. And what I've learned about the type one conversation is that uh, nobody wants to associate kids with sex, obviously. So having gotten herpes in childhood, yeah, it's fever blisters, cold sores, HSV-1. Oh, it's just HSV-1. You would have gotten that from someone kissing you as a kid and showing you love and affection. Now that same kid grows into being 30 and having had sex with X number of people and put genital, put mouth, their mouth to genitals now has passed this on to people. And now it's now, uh, it's a STI. That's something that is a little bit frustrating about this is that it goes from being something that you just got from love and affection as a youth to now being the worst thing that can happen to somebody in the world. And now they want to kill themselves. Here's something yeah. positive for positive people. Totally. Yeah, well said. Thank you for that language. Really mm -hmm. appreciate it. Of course. And thank you for everything you do. Thank you. I really appreciate that. All right, that concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, share, subscribe to, and donate to this nonprofit organization. Um, this is the resource 
You know, when people tell me that they've been helped or that something made a difference for them or something clicked, like, it's this. It's me talking to people, sometimes helping them with exploring uh, aspects of their identity and their sexuality just through genuine questioning that they say that helps. But mostly it's a podcast. And I do a lot of different things through this organization. And I talked about it on different podcasts. And I, I can't get my intro together because I don't want it to be 10 minutes long explaining exactly what it is that I do. But this is an important part of it. Getting the healthcare providers perspectives here so that we can best set ourselves up for success uh, as we navigate not just herpes stigma, but also, you know, our sexual health and not just our sexual health, but our mental health and not even only our mental health, but our overall health and our emotional health, like our overall well-being. That is what this does. And this is just one pathway of being able to do so. And the pathway just happens to be a stigmatized virus known as herpes. So um, I hope that you were able to get something out of this. If you have any feedback, if you have questions for the healthcare providers, please let me know. Um, I also want to shout out our sponsor, Shameless Care. Go to shamelesscare.com slash SPFPP and you can get that reduced cost STI testing at home STI testing kit. All right. Catch y'all next time.